the sits in Laban here at the end of this, uh, we're looking at the last chapter tonight, is that um, the Jews are back from exile in Babylon. Not only that, they're back from Persia because Persians conquered the Babylonians like they conquered the Assyrians. And so now they're rebuilding uh, together with the temple and God is making promises and so forth. That's the setting several hundred years before Christ. So when you study a book of the Bible, find out, well, the who, what, where, when, and why. When did this happen? Uh, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, before Moses, after Moses. Zechariah has been an unusual book of prophecies, many of them apocalyptic with unusual visions of beasts and different color horses. And as I've said week by week, when you study Bible prophecy, it's not the same thing looking forward as looking back. Looking back, like in Usher's book, it's, uh, the Bible gives straightforward history without a lot of symbolism, maybe the occasional parable. But when you come to prophecy of the future, it has a tendency to bring in these unusual symbols, like in Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and especially Revelation. So one principle in studying the Bible and prophecy in particular, is how much of this is to be taken literally and how much figuratively. And the word literal has two senses. The first is we say, well, we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. That is the natural sense. It's not like hidden meanings in the numbers and in the letters. Um, That's still popular with cults and People that don't want to just take it for what it is. But the other sense of the word literal means that it's not figurative language, but highly symbolic. So we believe in that first sense, but the second one you have to be careful. You don't want to take literal, uh, that is non-figurative, something that is figurative. I wonder if you could name a few examples in the life of Jesus. John chapter 4, Jesus went to the woman at the well and said... um, Give me some water. And she was saying, well, what are you doing talking to me? You're a Jew, a man, and I'm a Samaritan woman. And so uh, she was a little weary, and Jesus said, well, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. And she took that literal and said, living water? Mister, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. Uh, I'm not talking about this water. I'm talking about figurative of other water, which was the Holy Spirit. But the previous chapter, chapter 3, you find another person that should have known better, Nicodemus. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. He took it literally, not symbolically, and said, "Uh, oh, wait a second. You mean back in my mother's womb? No, figurative. So when we look at prophecies like in Zechariah and the other ones, you take it in the natural sense, but then you have to say, is this figurative or metaphorical language, or is it something that's actual? So keep that in mind. Another biblical principle of prophecy, some of the prophecies, especially those with the highly symbolic figures of speech, um, you can study and you can study and study, and you still can't figure out because God's not going to give the meaning until that event happens. We find examples in the Old Testament and the New. Um, 
where God had predicted, there's usually double fulfillments. There's one in the near future and then another one in the far future. And when that near future one happens, they say, ah, this is what was predicted. Now we recognize it. Uh, one example of that is in Matthew 24. Jesus predicted that the um, Romans would come in, take over Israel, and they would back off and that Christians would leave. He says, you know, when you see the city surrounded, get out. And they probably wanted the Romans. Well, they, they, they rule our country, but they let us have freedom of religion. Jesus said, not for long, within one generation. But they, they said, well, what's this about getting out and heading out in the desert? But in, uh, was it 60-something A.D., the Romans surrounded, and there were Christians there. There were over a million people in the city, but several thousand were Christians. And the Romans said, we're going to lay siege and come out with your hands up or you're all going to die or be made slaves. Then they backed off and the Christians said, that's what Jesus said. Let's go. And Jesus had said, don't take time to pack a suitcase. Get out because there was like a 24-hour period where the Romans said, you can get out. Only Christians left and they went out into the desert, probably the area called Petra, because they didn't understand that prophecy until it came to pass. And there are other examples like that. So I'll say that for this reason. All of us get naturally curious about the future. Uh, what does the Bible say? We're going to get to that a little later in tonight's study. And so some people go overboard and they set dates for the coming of Christ. They don't realize, first off, there are some things we can't know until they come to pass. And also to know the difference of figurative and literal. Okay, there's our introduction. Tonight we do the last chapter of this unusual book we've been studying for several months. Verse, four, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. The Bible often mentions the day of the Lord. And again, this is where it's helpful to compare scripture with scripture. Sometimes that phrase is referring to something in the near future when God will do something either by way of judgment or blessing. It's like God says, step aside, this is my day. Like the old saying, every dog has his day, God has his day. But those also days of the Lord prefigure the ultimate day of the Lord, which is the second coming of Christ, which we'd call the apocalypse, doomsday. And so this is probably looking far to the future. The day of the Lord is coming and your spore will be divided. Now, how this comes to pass is a little difficult to understand. But you have to see that it's already predicted other things in previous chapters. Okay, verses 2 and 3. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, that is plundered, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. What's this predicting? I'm inclined to go with those that say this is talking about the battle of Armageddon right before the second coming of Christ. And uh, it says here, all the nations battling against Jerusalem and uh, that will be the area in which Jesus comes. We'll look at that in a minute. And so it's like they're all coming against not only Israel, but against God's people, including Christians that will be there, and they're going against God. 
And God says the, the, the city will be taken, all these people coming, and it'll be a terrible thing. But then the Lord will fight against them in verse 3. And this has been interpreted in various ways, that all the world really hates God and they hate God's people. And the time will come, they say, we've had enough of them. Just like Hitler said, enough of the Jews, kill them all. If you read about this in the book of Revelation, they'll go after Christians. We've had enough of Christianity, persecute them, kill them, whatever. And they'll begin this, and then God intervenes at the second coming and rescues his people. And that's what it says in verse 3. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now, when you interpret the Bible, in addition to see how literal and figurative and the sits in Laban, when you see a personal pronoun, you have to say, who's this talking about? Look at the verse. In that day, his feet. His who? The feet of the Lord from back in verse 3. The Lord will go forth. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, before Jesus came, kind of picture yourself before Jesus came, and let's say you're in the synagogue. Let's say you're even the rabbi. And you come to this, and you're trying to preach on it, because that's what the rabbis did. And I'm, I'm sure they, you know, they, they either did this. You know, when men get curious, they scratch the back of their neck, or if they have a beard, they do this. The rabbis would probably pull on their beard and say, hey, what is this talking about? The Lord standing on the Mount of Olives, how can he do that? He doesn't have a body. It didn't occur to them what? What we see looking back. In other words, when this came to pass, the early Christians said, yes, this is talking about Jesus, who's God that took on a human body. And they tried to preach that, and the rabbis stroked their beard again. Really, is that what it's saying here about God taking on a body? It's like what... Solomon prayed in the Old Testament when we dedicated the temple and he said, this can't hold the Lord. Even the universe can't hold the Lord. Interesting verse. Then he says, will the Lord stand on the earth? Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on that and said, yes, that's what happened at Christmas. Jesus came and stood on the earth for the next 33 years. And I preached on that verse at Christmas once. So this is talking about his feet, whose? God's feet, which means he has to have a body, the incarnation, and will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is not talking about his first coming. Because remember, the context is the latter days leading up to the second coming. So this would be his second coming. When Jesus returns, his feet stand on the Mount of Olives. How do I know? You remember Acts chapter 1, the ascension. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, he met with his apostles on a mountain, probably the Mount of Olives, and he went back up to heaven from there. His feet were no longer on the earth. He went up, and they saw him disappear into a cloud, going back into heaven. Angels appeared, and they said, why are you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus will come as he left. How did he leave? From the Mount of Olives, going up in a cloud. The Bible says he's going to come back in a cloud and land in that specific place where his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now that's just outside of Jerusalem. Has anybody here been to Israel and Jerusalem? 
Matt, as you were baptized in the River Jordan, did you go to the Mount of Olives? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's kind of a tall hill overlooking Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, which is also a hill. And it's mentioned several times in the Gospels. Some scholars think it's also the Mount of Transfiguration, but that mountain is not specifically identified. But what is interesting is Matthew 24, Jesus with the apostles, and he's just rebuked the, the Pharisees, called them hypocrites seven times. And, and as they're leaving the temple, the, uh, the apostles were just struck by the beauty of the, this temple that Solomon had built and tore down is rebuilt. Magnificent. Kind of like someone from the sticks going to New York and saying, all these tall buildings. And they said, look how beautiful it is. And it had gold on it and all of this. And Jesus said, it's all going to be torn down one day. When? And that's when he gave the prophecy about one generation in the Romans. But it's very interesting. He then went to the Mount of Olives and continued that discourse. And that's known as the Olivet Discourse where Jesus predicted his second coming. And that's a hint about him being the Messiah coming back another time, feet landing on the Mount of Olives. And it says here it'll be split. Uh, I take that in a literal sense. You could say, well, it's figurative, but uh, it's going to happen when he comes. Now, there have been earthquakes earlier. Verse 5 mentions one. But this is probably not a... a natural earthquake, but God does use natural earthquakes. This will be a special one. And again, um, you have to interpret certain um, geological and cosmological events in the Bible. Um, how did this happen? Not only is it figurative or literal, but was it supernatural or natural? For example, Joshua fit the Jer uh, battle of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. I remember talking to someone that I knew at seminary. He's a few years older than me, brilliant as can be, high IQ. And he says, yes, that was simply a natural earthquake that crumbled the walls down. But the amazing thing is that God told Joshua, it's going to happen. And I said, well, that's a nice interpretation. But it seems to me it's more of a supernatural intervention of God at just the right time doing the right thing. So we have to look at events like that and say, was this a natural thing or was this a divine intervention? Of course, God's behind all natural things, but some of them you'd have to say are supernatural, which brings us to verse five. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley that created by this splitting of the mountain. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So it mentions a previous earthquake. There are a number of earthquakes in the Bible, including when Jesus died. Remember this morning I mentioned the darkness. Think of the other things that were happening. It became dark. I like to say it became sunset at high noon. And people wondered, what, and it wasn't an eclipse, by the way, because it was a full moon. can't have an eclipse at a full moon. The last couple of nights, full moon. can't have an eclipse then. It just astronomically impossible. So they're wondering what's going on, so they're terrified. And not only that, here comes this rumbling of the earthquake, possibly a storm with lightning. 
God was doing something. This was supernatural phenomena telling them, don't you see what's happening? God uses earthquakes. For example, that got the attention of that tough Roman guard in Philippi, the Philippian jailer. God sent that earthquake to shake him and to put the fear of death in him. And he went to Paul's house, what do I have to do to be saved? There's a lesson in that. You're praying for some lost loved one. Pray that God shakes him either with some major health problem or whatever, to get his attention. Don't pray, well, he hasn't good being good health. No, God says, I'm going to send him bad health to get his attention. A lot of people become Christians when they're in the valley of affliction and fear drives them to God. Another interesting verse, Haggai's quote in Hebrews, where God says, one day I will shake not only the earth, but heaven. In other words, not just earthquakes. There'll be a big earthquake right before the second coming kills a large part of humanity. But God says, I'm even going to shake the powers of heaven. Is he talking about the stars or he's talking about the demonic forces or perhaps both? Look at the last part of this verse. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. The Lord my God will come. You know, that could be construed as um, uh, proof number 101 of the deity of Christ. Look at this closely. The Lord my God will come. That's, and this is talking about the second coming. His feet. Whose? The Lord's feet. There's proof number 101. I, maybe a second edition of my book will do 101 proofs of the deity of Christ. But this is talking about the coming of the Lord because occasionally these days of the Lord in the Bible talks about a invisible coming where the Lord intervenes, but this is talking about the ultimate coming of the Lord. We call it the second coming. And all the saints with you or with him. Bible says when Jesus comes from heaven, who comes with him? Angels, who are sometimes called holy ones, saints, and Christians will come with him, riding on white horses. It shall come to pass in that day, verse 6, that there will be no light, the lights will diminish, It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen. It will be light. Darkness, as we preached about this morning, darkness and light. So there'll be no light. And that's probably literal because there'll be all these things happening in that period called the Great Tribulation leading up to the second coming. Uh, The moon turning red and the lights going out. And it's God, again, trying to get people's attention and warning them, but nobody repents. But this would be literal darkness, just like, you remember, at Calvary, that darkness for several hours. And then the darkness in Egypt. Remember all those plagues to get their attention, especially Pharaoh, let my people go. And there's going to be darkness everywhere. But curiously, this is an... Uh, an echo of Egypt. That's also important interpreting prophecy. Did something like this happen earlier? You can't understand Revelation without seeing so many allusions to things in the Old Testament, such as in Egypt. So it says, in that day there'll be no light. There was darkness all over Egypt. But then it says, there'll be neither day or night, but at evening it shall happen, there'll be light. That is an indirect allusion to what happened in Egypt. You know where I'm going with this? Darkness everywhere, except in the Jews' homes. I'm sure the Egyptians said, where'd that light come from? Someone wrote a little book about Ephesians and alluded to that and called it Light in Their Dwellings. 
and you could draw from this some light, uh, some application. The world is in Stygian darkness, but yet God gives light to his people. It says here, there will be light, but only for God's people. The rest of them are groping about in darkness of sin. So the principle here is God's intervention in Bible history prefigured ultimate fulfillment in the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus. One other lesson, verse 7. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. And you could put in there which is known only to the Lord. You know where I'm going with this. We're naturally curious. When's this going to happen? That's exactly what the apostles asked Jesus when he said, this is all going to be torn down and there'll be the coming of the Son of Man. So they asked three questions. When is this going to happen? And what's the sign? And they said it's all going to happen at once. Jesus explained to say, no, it's going to take two stages, 70 AD and then later at the second coming. But they wanted to know, when is this going to happen? And then uh, a few weeks later, when Jesus ascended, one of the last things that they asked him was, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And And Jesus said, basically what? None of your business. I'm not going to tell you. It's not for you to know the times or seasons the Lord has placed in his own authority. And so we're naturally curious. But the Lord says, are there certain things that are known only to me, such as the date of the second coming? (laughs) Prophecy experts always think that they can predict when Jesus is coming, you know, next Tuesday at five o'clock and things like that. Ignore them all. Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us. Don't pry into unrevealed things. Secrets such as this. In that Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour except the Father. And you're not the Father, so don't ask. He's not telling you. Don't guess. It's known only to the Lord. What about when Christians say, I want to know when Jesus... What if we could find out? That would change everything in our lives. We'd probably quit our job, start evangelizing, say, well, Jesus is coming next week. There's one reason he hasn't told us when. There's something about us that we're just naturally curious. For example, you tell someone, I've got a secret about somebody. And they're going to say, well, tell me, what is it? I want some gossip. He said, no, I can't tell you. Well, you remember Delilah nagged Samson for his secret and he gave in. But God's not going to give in with our prophecy nagging. But there is such a thing as an undue curiosity about certain things in the spiritual realm. Now, there are secrets God's not going to tell us. They're known only to the Lord. Secrets about the the Trinity and other things that we can't even ask questions about, let alone know the answers. But there's a misuse of this, not just trying to find out the day of the second coming, but outside of Christianity, there's a practice where people try to find out secrets in order to get secret power or secret knowledge. You know what that's called? The occult. Look it up, the word occult means secret stuff that you can find out by going through some mystical ceremony at some coven or something like that and break sticks and burn black incense and candles and chant and you can get secret power to cast spells or secret knowledge. And the Bible utterly forbids all that. Think of that when Halloween comes in a few weeks. Um, Ouija boards and so forth. So, But that is an outgrowth of the natural tendency for curiosity.
curiosity about secret things. We need to know where to draw the line between what is revealed and what has not been revealed. Verse 8 now, in that day, notice how often it keeps saying, in that day, in that day, one day, the day of the Lord, it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, that would be the Mediterranean sea, and both summer and winter it shall occur. What's this predicting? Some take that little, just like the uh, splitting of the um, Mount of Olives and the different valleys being created, and they say, well, then there'll be waters coming out of that, because, you know, there's water under the ground, and sometimes it comes up in a spring or a gusher. Perhaps, but I'm inclined to think there is a, um, make a note of this, seminary student, a key exegetical indicator. And that's not key economic indicator, but exegetical. God puts in key words that give us a clue as to what this is talking about. And the key exegetical indicator is the word living waters. It doesn't say, well, there's going to be water flowing. When he says living water, what does that mean? Well, there was a figure of speech uh, back in those days talking about living waters, referring to flowing waters like a river and not water that is setting like a pond or a lake. So living waters meant like a river. For example, um, there's a very small book written about the year 90 AD after the New Testament had been finished called the Didache. Uh, the Greek for the teaching, and it talks about baptism. It says, baptize a person three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, and baptize them in a lake. And if you can't find a lake, baptize them in, quote, living waters. In other words, go down to where there's a river, but it uses the phrase living waters. That having to be said, though, I take this to be referring to something more spiritual. In other words, not literal but figurative, living waters. How do I know? This phrase is used not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Class, would you know where? John 4, John 7, Revelation 21, giving signals here. It talks about living water and the water of life. And what is that? Now, people misinterpret that very commonly. They say, well, Jesus said to the woman, I will give you living water. And they say, Jesus is the living water. No. Fast forward to John chapter 7. Jesus said to the crowds, notice he said it with a loud voice. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him living water and water will flow. An allusion to this. And then John interprets it in the gospel of John and says, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives the living water. He gives the Holy Spirit. And then that one in Revelation 22, 1. Sorry, I said 21. It's 22, verse 1. And it says that uh, he, he beholds the throne of God and him that sat on the throne and the Lamb. And from their throne proceeds the river of the water of life. That's possession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son coming forth to his people. So, this is a prediction that Christ sends the Spirit as living water to deliver, to bring spiritual life from God into the dead hearts of sinners. Like I said, this morning we're spiritually dead. And he keeps applying that life to us. So you can see, by the way, what I've just shown you is 
not just the literal interpretation, but what theologians call theological interpretation. What is this saying theologically uh, that you can compare scripture with scripture and not just get the literal meaning, but what is this saying about ultimate things in the supernatural and theological realm? It's often called theological interpretation. There's a validity to that. There's a misuse, but this is an example of how you look at that and say, well, this is talking about something theological. Look at verse 9 now. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. You say, wait, wait, wait. It says on that day he will be the king. Isn't he already the king? Yes. Now here's where you have to theological interpretation, looking at the flow of scripture. You find God being king in several ways. Number one, he's already king. We call that the sovereignty of God. He is king of kings. He rules over everything. But then secondly, when Jesus came, he was pronouncing the coming of the kingdom of God. Did you notice that, especially in Matthew? The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says the kingdom of God is like this. Now, he wasn't talking about a Jewish kingdom, which is what the Jews expected. And that's why they wanted to make him king in John chapter 6. And he declined it. He set up a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. Remember, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not not of this world. If it was, my people would fight for me. But they're not. So he brings in the kingdom of God. In in fact, in one of his parables, he said it's like planting a seed. The seed was planting, and for the last 2,000 years, that tree of the kingdom of God has been growing. New branches, twigs, leaves, as people are converted. But the culmination of the kingdom of God that's entered here will be at the second coming. For example, Revelation eleven fifteen describes it, quote, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The ultimate overthrow of the kingdom of the devil will be accomplished. There will be no doubt around the world who is boss and king. And that's the Lord Jesus. He will finally establish it. And of course, at the end of the millennium, a little rebellion, it puts it down in a flash. And that's what it's predicting here. He will be the ultimate king. But notice what else it says. The Lord is one and his name one. Now, if you're a Bible student, you know what this is. It's an allusion. By the way, I use the word allusion, not illusion. Illusion starts with an I. It means like something that's not really there, an optical illusion. Allusion, starting with an A, means something you are alluding to, referring to something directly or indirectly. This is an allusion to what? Please, someone tell me. The Lord is one. Yes, what is that? Shout it out. Pretend you're Jewish and say it with holy reverence. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Most important verse in the whole Hebrew Bible. Ask your Jewish friends, do you know the Shema? And they say, I'm Jewish. I can say it to you in Hebrew. The Lord is one. So what this predicting is on that day, uh, everybody that's left after the second coming, in other words, God people, they will truly believe the Lord is one and his name is is one. You can tell I get excited about the Shema. The Bible teaches strict monotheism, not polytheism of the Hindus and the Mormons, and not the henotheism of the Canaanites 
Henotheism means they believe in many gods, but they have their favorite. You ever met someone in the cult called Harry Krishna? That's H-A-R-E, Krishna. Not like Harry Potter. Um, they believe in many gods because they're Hindus, but their favorite is Krishna. The Bible does not teach polytheism or henotheism or pantheism or atheism. It teaches biblical monotheism. How do I know? The Lord our God, he is one. And especially you find this in Isaiah 44 to 48. He is the one and only God. I'm the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. We need to believe that and tell people. Not only is there a God, there's only one God. Please say amen. The Lord is one. Quickly, we'll continue the chapter. All the land shall be turned into a plain from, now here's some interesting names, from Geba to Riman, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel to the king's wine press. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall be the utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. I think that following the um, chronology of Zechariah and other places, it's after this um, major topological changes such as the splitting of the Mount of Olives, there's going to be peace. Um, by the way, look at this. Um, it goes on to mention this plague, but all the land will be turned to a plain. Uh, remember, John the Baptist came and said, make the path straight. That, that which is high is going to be brought down. That which is low is being brought up. Figurative speech, but probably at the second coming, God's going to have an intervention and even change the topological structure and that wouldn't be the first time. What was the first time? The flood. You remember Second Peter? People say, oh, everything's continued since the beginning. And Peter says, no, they have not. God intervened with the flood and created deep valleys like uh, the Grand Canyon. Did it very quickly. And then mountains were pushed up. Before that, it was more flat. But So at the second coming, there's going to be great topological um, changes. It'll be major. And then it says here, you know, this plain from these mountains will be very straight. Jerusalem will be raised up and inhabited. Now, I'm not sure about all these gates because you remember there are 12 gates and so forth. And there's the water gate and this gate and that gate. And then it mentions the king's wine presses. Verse 11, the people shall dwell in it. No longer shall there be utter destruction. Jerusalem will be safely inhabited. In other words, Peace at last. What did the angel say in Luke 2 when Jesus was born? Peace on earth. But then Jesus basically said, not yet. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. But he is the prince of peace. Starts in the inner kingdom of our heart. And then later at the second coming, he crushes all of his enemies, including the demonic forces. And he sets up peace. Whether you're premillennial, amillennial, or whatever, eventually it's going to end in total peace under the prince of of peace. When? I think that this is talking about after the apocalypse of the second coming and therefore the millennium because millennium is in chapter 20 of Revelation following the second coming of chapter 19. But either way is going to be perfect peace in eternity and in the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven on earth. Peace at last. Brings us to verse 12. And this is a Kind of a gutsy prediction. 
This shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouth. Now, when I was young, the prophecy expert says, well, this means there's going to be a nuclear holocaust because this is what happens. The elements all melt. Well, I don't think that the world's going to end in a nuclear holocaust, but when Jesus comes, it's going to be far superior to that. Second, Second Peter chapter 2, which often alludes to Old Testament prophecies. The element shall melt. The word element means the lowest things like the molecules and the atoms, even affecting people. Now, just imagine this extreme heat and their eyes will dissolve in their sockets. Tongues will melt. Their flesh will melt. Have you ever seen documentaries about what happened in Hiroshima with the people that survived it? Often their skin just melted and dripping down in globs. Nothing compared to the second coming. This is the doom of all lost sinners that will not repent even when Jesus is coming. They'll react, verse 13, with panic. Shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Jerusalem will fight it. Judah will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. The enemies of God and of his people, both Jews, Jewish Christians, and all Christians, including Gentile Christians. But look at this awful doom about everything melting You see, on that great day, God's going to say, I'm going to prove to you who I really am. And the atheists will be surprised. People that have fought against God will say, we were fighting against God. And it says here, there'll be this mass panic. Revelation uh, 6.16 predicts it. And says, as they somehow figure, here comes the Messiah. Uh Uh-oh. They're going to run like a thief away from a policeman. And they're going to go try to hide in the caves and in the tunnels of the earth. To no avail. You can run, but you cannot hide. Why? Because they're in panic. Anybody remember 9-11? First tower came down. People were running for their lives. You remember that these businessmen in $1,000 Versace suits and shoes running for their lives. Panic. It's going to happen at the second coming everywhere. Panic. A great panic from the Lord. That's what they're afraid of. And it says, Judah will also fight Jerusalem. Wealth of the surrounding nations won't mean anything. That's predicted in Revelation about mystery Babylon. So wealthy and it's not going to mean anything. Gold, silver, apparel in great abundance won't mean anything when the apocalypse happens. Verse 15, not just humans, the animals. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. Even the animals will die. That's another allusion to the flood where Noah was commanded to save some of the animals to repopulate the world. But what happened to all the other animals? Same thing as all the rest of humanity. They drowned. But at the apocalypse, none of the animals will survive. None of the unrepentant sinners either. Brings us to verse 16. Shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of tabernacles, and so on. Is this to be taken literal or not? Again, you compare scripture with scripture. On the one hand, 
There are those that are called dispensationalists that say this is literal. Some people survive the second coming and in the millennium, these unbelievers as well as believers go to Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles and they have animal sacrifices. My interpretation is no. God will not reinstitute animal sacrifices. Have you never read the book of Hebrews? It is finished. No more. Man may try to do it before the second coming, but during God's kingdom in the millennium, this is more something figurative. What? Um, The feasts in the Old Testament were symbolic of something else. Passover was a type of Jesus. It was called our Passover. So I follow those that interpret this as to saying that those that are in this kingdom of God on earth, and it's only believers, they will worship God truly like those feasts were typifying and predicting. So the fulfillment is not a literal thing, but a symbolic thing. I hope that makes some interpretation. For example, there's a parallel. I've sometimes been asked, uh, Pastor, you believe in the millennium? Yes. Are we going to have the Lord's Supper during the millennium? Did not Jesus say, at the end of the first Lord's Supper, I will not celebrate it with you again until I celebrate it with you in the kingdom of heaven? So they said, okay, uh, maybe there won't be animal sacrifices, but are we going to eat and drink communion once a week, once a month, once a day, whatever, for a thousand years? My answer is no. We don't need it. How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? With the king that's right there. Once you've got him, you don't need the symbols. You've got him. But he doesn't have to die again. But we will always remember his death as we worship him. Verse 17, it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Now, I'm not sure how that applies to the future. I'm not a prophecy expert that likes to guess. I'll just say, I'm not quite sure what this means. But there is a lesson here, theologically. If the family of Egypt will not come and enter in, they shall have no rain. Remember the plagues on Egypt. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, again, alluding back to the Old Testament, and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. My interpretation, what we call theological interpretation, is what is the theological principle here? Not just the where and the when, but the why. Why do people truly worship God? Because they are true believers. Those that are not true believers do not truly worship God. Therefore, they will be punished. Lastly, verses 20 and 21. In that day, the final day, God settled all accounts. Holiness to the Lord. Notice in capital letters. Shall be engraved. Let me comment on that. Um, If you study the Greek at that time, everything is in big letters. And then in the Middle Ages, capital letters. Same thing with Hebrew. You look at a Hebrew manuscript or Hebrew Bible. Every now and then, they put a word in very large Hebrew letters. And that's why it's in capital letters here. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem And Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. 
What's this about bells? It's not talking about jingle bells on horses pulling sleighs in winter. But evidently, horses would sometimes have a bell, just like a cow bell, kind of saying this is a special horse. So what God's saying is, though other animals have been killed with unbelievers, there's going to be some big, big change. Holiness of the Lord will be everywhere. Because God, the king, will establish a holy kingdom from shore to shore. And it says no longer any Canaanite. You remember the Canaanites were the wicked people that lived in the promised land. And then the Jews came and during Joshua in particular, uh, slew most of them. A few survived. Could you name any later Canaanites that did become true believers? Rahab and Uriah. But by the time of Jesus, there were virtually no Canaanites left. But again, this is symbolic. Canaanites were the very, very wicked people. When God established his kingdom finally on the earth, there will be no more wicked people, only his people that will be totally made holy unto the Lord. And this also is characterizing both the millennium and eternal heaven holy. Revelation 21.1 calls it the holy city. Revelation 21.8 and 27 says that There'll be no more sin or sinners in God's kingdom anymore. Where are they going to be? They're going to be punished in hell. Not in the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be holy. In fact, chapter 22, verse 11 says, Let him that is filthy be filthy still. Where? In hell. But let him that is righteous be righteous still. Where? In heaven. Holiness to the Lord. The new heavens and the new earth will be both totally Holy, including us. Boy, that's worth looking forward to. Total, perfect sanctification. No more sin. Thought, word, or deed. A mission commission. Bible says the spirits of just men made perfect. But not, you want a little icing on the cake? I like to say a little ice cream on top of the pie. Pie a la mode. We will not only not sin anymore, we will be incapable of sinning. Impeccable, just like the angels that never fell, and of course, like God and Christ, who cannot sin, will never sin anymore. Revelation describes heaven as kind of like a new paradise, and even calls it paradise, comparable to, it's an allusion to the Old Testament Garden of Eden before the fall. But in the new Garden of Eden, the paradise of heaven, there'll be no serpent, there'll be no tree that we're forbidden from, there'll be no trial period. Everything will be perfect and better than at the beginning. And it'll be holiness everywhere. I was reading Jonathan Edwards on this recently, my favorite theologian. He said, holiness is God's beauty. So everything in heaven will be glorious and beautiful because it's all holy. Heaven will be beautiful because it's holy. And holiness is revealed everywhere for eternity. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. When you think of heaven, do you automatically think about it as being holy? We should. On the negative side, no sin. And on the positive side, love, holiness, glory, everywhere. And that's how this mysterious book ends. And it ends not only my teaching on Zechariah, but now I can say I preach through all the 12 minor prophets and also Daniel to boot. Now, if you want to know what I'm going to preach on next week, you'll have to come back because I'll start a new series after our Bible conference. Let us pray.
Father, thank you for inspiring Zechariah to write down your exact words that are mysterious to us. Give us patience and wisdom to study your word and to learn the lessons about yourself and about Jesus so that we can grow in faith and worship you more. In Jesus' name, amen.